Hey, welcome. This is Pastor Tyler Whitcomb. I just want to say on behalf of the leadership of Fos Church, we are so glad that you're checking out the Fos Church podcast. At Fos, we believe in the authority of God's Word and the ability it has through the power of the Holy Spirit to change the hearts of mankind and to mold and shape its readers into the image of Christ. And so we pray that these messages would do just that, that you would hear God's word and be changed by it. Lastly, our encouragement is, if you do not belong to a local Bible-believing church, that you would do so, because a podcast will never allow you to serve the purpose that God has called you into belonging to the church. Great to be with you all this morning. We're continuing on in Living Hope, a series walking through First Peter. So we're six weeks in now. There's a lot that we've covered thus far, um, but primarily what we covered was one major big theme um, out of the three major themes, which is living hope. Uh, but the second main theme after Peter transitions his thought, his line of thinking within the book is he actually says there's a code of conduct. There's a way you should orient your life if you're a believer in Jesus. Like, like the hope should be reflective in the way you live your life. And so how that initially started was he said, hey, there's... Submission, which is like the S word of all S words in our culture, right? Nobody wants to submit to any authority because we've seen corruption in authority, have we not? I mean, look to Washington. Whether it was your candidate or not, my guess is there's a lot of corruption still. Thank you. Um, and, and so we've seen the corruption. We've seen people, thank you. Um, we've seen people abuse authority and power, and, and so we have a really hard time trusting, and maybe you grew up in a home where there was abuse, physically, sexually, emotionally, and, and so for you, it's really hard to think that the, the heart of God would actually bid you to submit to an authority, even earthly authorities, because that's, that's how Peter transitions that thought from living hope to then saying, submit to the governing authorities in your life, whether emperor, governor, or your boss, and the radical thing about that is Peter says that only to get beheaded by that very emperor. That's radical. That's a, why, why on earth, how could you possibly say submit to that kind of authority? Because it's a reflection. It's a reflection of the hope that you have. And so then he says, not only do, do you see this idea of submission out in the world, but you should also see it in your home. Right, and husbands and wives and how you should love one another. And, and he says that, that can actually speak a message to the world. And he says, this, when he talks about husbands and wives, he doesn't paint the picture of the perfect marriage. He literally says in the, in the text in, in 1 Peter 3, through 1 through 7, what you see Peter say is, he says, hey, that you might win your unbelieving spouse. So he, he says to, to, the, to the wife, he says, if you were to honor and respect your husband and not use your words, but actually maybe just the way you love and serve, how that might actually give you an opportunity to see your unbelieving spouse come into relationship with, with God. And so um, it's a spouse that's uh, either, either an unbeliever or a believer living in disobedience. And so it's not a perfect marriage. There's difficulties. And, and we know that there's no such thing as the perfect marriage, but... Within that, we still know that there's struggles and difficulties. And Peter says, this is how you should orient your life. This would give you the, the world a picture 
of the hope that you have. Right? If you were to love your spouse this way, um, in our text today, he's going he's gonna to continue that thought, but he's going he's gonna to put the period on it. He's going to put the pin in the hole, if you will. Um, because there's, at this point, his original audience, I'm sure, is, is gathering a lot of thoughts, a lot of questions like, hey, explain this more because I don't know if you realize or totally understand how hostile it is out there or I don't know how, you know, how difficult it is to live with my spouse. If you knew my spouse, Peter, you'd be putting a little asterisk and saying, I'm the clause, I'm the exception. Right, we like to think that. We like to think that our circumstance is the unique one that, that trumps God's commands. But it doesn't. It doesn't. Peter understands exactly what he's telling this unbelieving or this, this church that's suffering. Because that's the context. The original audience was the church that was suffering and they scattered. And he says, you scattered all these different places and what Peter essentially acknowledges, you're not in Kansas anymore. Jerusalem, you know, the 5,000 people, altar calls, that, like that's done. Jesus going around healing diseases and giving people free lunch. We're not seeing that we're experiencing the hard days now of what it really meant to follow Jesus. And people came to Jesus for all these variety of reasons in his, in his own ministry, and he had to reorient, he had to reteach them what it actually was that he was calling them to. Because oftentimes when people did come for that stuff, when they did come for the free lunch, when they did come for the healing, ultimately Jesus says things like, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no place in the kingdom. Those are radical statements. People are like, whoa, dude, I was here for free lunch, not cannibalism. Right? This is weird now. You just said something really weird and we're leaving. Grab the kids, honey, and let's go. That's what happened, and it dwindled down. Because Jesus was reorienting and teaching them what it really, you're coming for the good days, but are you willing to stay when things get bad? Are you willing to go to the cross with me? Because that's where we're going. That's where this is headed. You gonna drink my blood? You gonna do the very thing that I'm doing? You, you ready for that? It was a radical idea that nobody was really looking to sign up for. But Jesus, I promise you something better. The life I'm calling you into is so much better than the world is offering. And so he's, Jesus wants to know, are you ready for the bad days? Uh, I shared last week, um, if you're new here or you didn't know, um, a large part of my testimony and call to ministry um, was uh, one, of the th- one of the ways God really grabbed a hold of my heart was a thing called Crohn's disease. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. Um, but it was a real bad season of suffering that I had at 16. Um, and then at 19, I had a surgery go really bad. Uh, so I shared that last week. Troy Beaumont, four north, two months. February to April, 2014. And in that time, I've always described it as that was the best two months of my life and the worst two months of my life. It was the best in the sense that I really, really understood who God was in the midst of suffering like I never had before. And so I actually have a desire to write on this topic, like this message. If I could have like a life manifesto, this would be the subject, this would be the topic. And where where I say that was the best two months, it was also just like more solidifying, like I knew nothing else was gonna drive me, drive my life than Jesus. And I saw Jesus beginning to call me into the ministry and I didn't really know what that meant at that time. Quite frankly, I still don't know what that means at this time. But I, I began to really fall in love with Jesus in a really deep way. I found his grace to be sufficient in the worst days. And in that, um, 
I, I always felt like, okay, the people that God is calling me towards, the people that I have a heart for, uh, are the people that are hurting and broken. And then I come to find out, wow, then my, my net has to be really broad because that's everybody. <laughs> like nobody does not fit within that category, right? And so when I, when, I, when I share this story like last week and say, hey, Jesus found me at the worst point and really grabbed a hold of my heart. And, and again, this story, I could, I, could talk, I could speak for hours on it about how I found Jesus to be good amidst suffering. And you heard that story of Marilyn in the tub. It was like, you know, her talking about, I found Jesus, you know, to really understand what God and Jesus had done for me through a cancer diagnosis of all things. And this week, as, as Marilyn and I were chatting on the phone, um, we just I said, it's, it's interesting that this is the means that God often uses. It's not the only means, but it's a means he uses often. And it's because we learn more about God in the schoolhouse of affliction than we do anywhere else. When we've brought them brought low, when we experience the valleys of life that no one asked for, that's when we learn the deepest parts of God and his grace. And, and you maybe say, hey, are you just pulling that out? Are you just saying that? I, I don't think so. I think the Bible shares this. I, I, I see this in the New Testament when, when the Apostle Paul talks about a thorn in his side, and we're not going there today. We're not talking what, what was the thorn um, you know, if you want to watch some basement theologian on YouTube, you feel, feel free. You know, I'm sure they have lots of thoughts on what that thorn was. But Paul says, three times I pleaded with the Lord. And so what we do know was that there was something in Paul's life that he wished wasn't there. He said, if, if I had the choice, God, I would tell you this should be ridden of my life. Three times I pled with the Lord. Anybody relate to that? Anybody relate to that? Right, three times you pleaded with the Lord that he would do something, that he would move, that he would shake things up a little bit. And maybe for you, you'd say, hey, you know what? I did plead with the Lord three times, and guess what? He didn't answer the way I was asking for it. Maybe that's for you. And you say, hey, why didn't God give me? And maybe for you, that creates a level of doubt. Like, is God really good? Because life really sucked for some time, and I really expected God to move, and he didn't. And I just felt like my prayers were falling on deaf ears. And so is God good? And maybe that's the dilemma, that's the question. You know, is God good? Is he all powerful like the word of God tells us that he is? Or he didn't deliver on what you were hoping for? In C.S. Lewis's book, The Problem of Pain, um, Clive Staples, which is C.S., Clive Staples, uh, he shows, yeah, this is the dilemma. This is the problem that people have with pain. It really comes down to this. This is for the skeptic, this is the inconceivable thought. Was how how can we have pain in a world that's governed by a God who is all good and all powerful? Because certainly pain should collapse this scenario. How does that work? And C.S. Lewis is one of the brilliant minds of our within the world history. And I, I'd encourage you to read that book. Again, I showed you last week. You probably have like 200 books. I'm just keeping adding books to your plate. But C.S. Lewis, The Problem of Pain, is about 130-ish pages. It doesn't take long to read. But in it, he shares that dilemma, that, that, that problem that people have is all good, all powerful pain. How do you reconcile all of this together? Because if he's all good, but 
can't stop the bad from happening, well, then he's not all-powerful. And on the contrary, if he's all-powerful but allows bad to go on in the world, then he's certainly not all-good. And so how do we marry these things together? If we really believe the characteristics of God, who he says he is, then we should be able to make sense of this. We should be able to make sense of this dilemma that has been debated over, by brilliant minds over millennia. And I want to say right out of the gate that I'm not some major intellect. I'm not some major intellect. You'll never see me uh, uh, debating the, the, the brilliant minds of our age. That's not me, and I, I wish it was at times. I wish I had all the answers. I wish I could make sense of it all for you. Connect every dot that you could leave here saying, okay, finally, somebody answered the why question that I've been plagued with for my whole life. I don't have that. But I can share with the words that the Apostle Paul shared, not Peter, Paul. When Paul says that God's power has rested on me. I can tell you that I went into the, a valley and I can tell you that I found God's grace to be sufficient. I don't know, so you know how it all works. I, don't have, I can't fathom all mysteries. But I can tell you that God's good in suffering. Has it been there? Done then? I don't, I don't pretend to have the worst of stories. I'm, I'm sure plenty of you would, could share horror stories that we'd all just probably cry at. But I can say in my, my own seasons, my own valleys, I found the grace of God to be good and sufficient. And then this is what the, the, uh, Paul says after he pled with the Lord three times. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 8 through 10. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take this away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that the Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and in insults and in hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What Paul just shared was that God wasn't going to be removing the hardships, the pain, the difficulties. He wasn't, that wasn't what Paul, God was doing for Paul. He said that, that what God was doing for me was that he was inviting me into a different strength I didn't possess before. Do, do we see that in our text? That I may boast? Why would Paul boast? So that the power of God may rest on me. Paul acknowledges there's this strength, this power that we get invited into, that we get to experience that's different, different than we're in the mountaintops of life. The valley offers you different grace. Why? Because God meets us with our needs. And so the greater the need, the greater the grace. When you're in more need of that, when you're in that need of that valley and that difficult time, you see that God's power, his grace is really sufficient more, more need, more grace. And that's the beauty with how God has wired the world to work. Um, I promise we're preaching 1 Peter 3 today. Um, but I have one more passage to get to before we do. Um, it's in Romans chapter 8, verse 20. Again, Paul. Paul is just like the voice on suffering because he has the testimony. I mean, nobody trumps Paul. Uh, in regards to suffering for the gospel. But here, here's what he says in Romans 8, verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, 
but because of him who subjected it in hope. Interesting thing about that is when you see that the whole of creation was subjected to futility, I don't have to probably convince you that humanity was subjected to futility. Why? Because you got, guess what? You watch people die. You watch people die, they have a life expectancy. You know, generally speaking, you know, most of you probably ain't making 100. Right? Less than 100 years, you're going to be gone. And so you say, oh, I see my body wasting away. I see death being a reality. Or, or even more than that, you just see the conflicts within humanity. You see the conflicts within people. You see the conflicts within marriages. You see conflicts within workplaces. And you say, hey, you don't have to tell us that, that humanity has been subjected to futility. I watched the evening news last night. Now you, you just be horrified by these stories, right? Because you, you turn on the evening news tonight, every story and every headline can be summarized under one category, broken, right? The most outspoken atheists can have to uh, relate with us on that idea that something's gone wrong here. Like nobody looks around at the natural world and says, this is how it should work, right? And when we try to justify behavior, sometimes we say, well, look at the animal kingdom, subjected to futility, not taking my cues from the animal kingdom, right? We're just not doing that. Why would we follow that? We're going to follow the word of God, but, but ultimately what the word of God tells us is that all of the whole of creation is subjected to futility. And when I, when I say that, I say, well, we don't have a problem believing that we have been subjected to futility. But do you see it's even grander than that? It's even greater than that? Because we enjoy sunsets. We enjoy walks on the beach. Right? Just a few months back, honeymoon, Duck, North Carolina, Outer Banks, um, I went on this, I got, I got asked to go on a four-mile, one-way walk for ice cream. It's a story for another day. I got duped into it. Uh, but we went, we went on this four-mile walk at, at, at sunset. And when you're in the Outer Banks, it's so crazy because when you look at different parts of the sky, they begin taking on different colors. And the water begins on taking on different colors. And even the sand began taking on different colors. And it was like nothing I had ever seen before. But according to Paul, Romans 8, it's not as beautiful as it could be. It's been subjected to futility in hope. Not for no reason, but in hope. That God worked the world in such a way that when sin entered the world, because we know that it wasn't always this way. We know that uh, creation wasn't always subjected to futility. You look at Genesis 1, you see God saying, good, good, good. There's a shalom, there's a peace, there's a rhythm of life that was good. Humanity had right relationship with God in the beginning. And in that, once, as the story goes, Adam and Eve sin. Sin enters the world. God gives a pronouncement on sin in Genesis chapter three. And one of the things he says to the man is he says, cursed is the ground that you walk on. Essentially, what, he told, what God told Adam in that very moment was, you are not going to escape the effects of sin. You're not going to escape the effects of sin. It's everywhere. The, the ground has now been cursed. And so creation subjected to futility and hope. Right? So, so humanity says, I want the creation over the creator. I don't want God. I want his stuff. And in that, 
okay, go out, go experience it. If that's what you want, humanity, if you don't want me, you want my stuff, you want the creation, go out and find out that it won't ultimately satisfy. It won't be as amazing as you hoped it would be. Right, because throughout millennia, people have, have said, hey, this is what I'm gonna chase after. I'm gonna chase after money, power, relationships, sex, alcohol, drugs. Like, we, we, we've thought enough of this, and certainly this longing, this ache in the soul will be satisfied. Subjected to futility and hope. That hope is that, yes, we would all have that prodigal son moment. That if we were out in the far country wasting away the, 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 the father's inheritance, that we would say, wow, this did not do for me. It was way better with the father than what I'm experiencing right now. So that's why the whole of creation has been subjected to futility and hope. That we would go out, yeah, that, that, that ultimately you would see the, the suffering that's within the world, the brokenness that's when, within the world. And this morning as we look at our text, what we're going to tune into is that suffering still happens for the believer. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, you're gonna find out again, it's not all sunshines and rainbows, right? It doesn't work that way, that there's bad days still come and this is the reality. And the Christmas season, Christmas season is such a reminder of that. Just like Peter's letter, first letter is a reminder that this isn't home, the Christmas season is the same thing, that Jesus had to come in to get us out. This isn't home. Don't get comfortable here. I, I, I think of the words from, from O Holy Night, a weary world rejoices. Right, this is a weary world. And why did it rejoice? Because the Son of Man came in. And he entered our world and he entered our brokenness to give us a picture of hope. And that picture is Jesus. And what Peter, again, is doing in our text is he's, he's, he's how you steward your life. And now he's gonna move from, not only do you steward it in the world, not only do you steward it in home, but you steward it in suffering. That the way you suffer, you can suffer well, you can suffer in such a way that would give the world a picture that you have a different kind of hope. How in the world do you go through something like that? How do you go through, how do you lose a child and still have hope? How do you get a cancer diagnosis and still have hope? How do you lose wealth, finances? How do you lose that kind of things and still have hope? Our hope is not placed in anything in this world. To have a hope that this world cannot touch requires our hope to be put in a place that's outside this world. You put it in anything in this world, it will not satisfy. It won't happen. And as we dive in, Peter's going to say how you can endure suffering. He's going to tell you how it matters. And that the way you conduct yourself within suffering is a reflection of the hope that you possess. Um, I was actually sharing this with, with Michael before service. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Problem of Pain, one of the things that Clive shares is that he never really wanted to write this book. Because he didn't view himself as one who knew how to suffer well. That should be all of us. Has anybody, has anybody figured that out? Like how to suffer well? Does anybody enjoy it? No, if you are, we're, we're, we got some people we can call. Um, but in that, C.S. Lewis says, I really have a tough time writing this book because I don't feel like I, I know how to endure pain well. However, 
Um, I'm writing this book because I do want to give you that, that logical argument for how God is good amidst pain. Um, but yeah, he says, I didn't really want to write because, and that's the danger, one of the great dangers of the church is that the attenders would come in on a Sunday and mask the pain of the soul, the dark night of the soul. And when I say attenders, I'm, I'm here. Right? I, I, I feel that same exact pressure. We don't want you to know that we had a fight this morning. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. But, right, it's like you come in and it's just like, goodness, like, I want to act like I have it all together. I want to act like I don't have any issues or problems, but that's just not real. And that's not life. Right? And so, how, how are we going to steward our suffering? Well, how are we going to steward this life? Well, while we can still be honest and transparent and vulnerable with one another because we know that there's grace that's sufficient. So we can boast all the more gladly about our difficulties, that are our hardships, our, our pains. Why? Because Christ's power rests on me, rests on you. And so we can boast about those things. We can be, those are, those are trophies of God's grace, as I've heard it said before. Right? And so one of those difficult hardships, I don't want us to, to buy the lie that everything's got to be awesome. That's not the culture we want to have here. There's one pastor in Dallas shares, uh, Matt Chandler, it's okay to not be okay. It's just not okay to stay that way. I've always loved that. It's okay to not be okay. It's just not okay to stay that way. Um, and so I want us to keep that in mind as we approach our First Peter 3. Um, I've eaten up a lot of time, so I promise we'll move quickly. Verse 8, finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Because of this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Peter says, finally, finally, okay, I'm, I'm gonna answer all those objections that you've had up until this point, right? Be, be subjected to the governing authorities in your life. Be subjected uh, when, when you're in the home to your spouse. Your, uh, that might be difficult. They might make it really hard. And yeah, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, church, Live out the hope that you have. You say, but, but you don't know my boss. You don't know my spouse. You don't know how difficult it is. Peter, how dare you say that to me without knowing my story? What authority are you speaking on? Finally, we're gonna get to this. Because suffering does come. Hardships do come. I'm talking to a church in context that's suffering. Again, we're not 90 AD. We're 53, 54 AD. Nobody's getting thrown to the the, the lions yet. Nobody's getting sawn in two yet. But you are experiencing the trend. And you're seeing where this road is going. And so I'm I'm just going to be quite honest with you guys. Like, no, Christ has called you to live differently in all these different areas. And so finally, all of you, be like-minded. Be like-minded. And so maybe... um, the, 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 as the audience is listening to 
Peter and he says, you know, put on these virtues, be like-minded. Who am I to be in like-minded with? Because a lot of people, when you hear the word be like-minded, it may not startle you. It may not startle you. You might think, yeah, I agree. Because your thought is be like-minded with me, the way I see it. Right? I, I mean, couldn't almost every marital or relational conflict be solved if the other person just thought like you? Right? How, how, many, how many issues would be resolved that way? If, you're, if your boss at work just thought like you? Well, certainly they know why, how perfect you are of an employee you are. They, they would be naming you employee of the month if they... If they if they really knew, right? And so um, he says, be like-minded. And Peter is not saying, be like-minded like me. Not everyone should think how I think. He's saying we should have the mind of Christ as we go through suffering. Like up until this point, you might be going through difficulties, hardships, put on the mind of Christ, and then what follows is those virtues. You see that? He says, be sympathetic, Love one another. Be compassionate and humble. And if you take those characteristics and you look in the, 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 the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, man, does Jesus embody those things. We'll get to that later, but, but Jesus embodies these virtues. And so no, we're not supposed to have the mind of our boss. We have, don't have the mind of me, but all to collectively, we should have the mind of Christ as we venture into the world. what I love what Peter says here about putting on these virtues is he says that in the midst of suffering, you get to choose how you respond. Right? Well, I think oftentimes we think that because something happened or something difficult happened or something hard happened, that we get to fly off the handle and that we get to act that way. But Peter's saying, no, you get to choose. You can put on these virtues. You can put on the mind of Christ. Okay, when, when my boss comes down on me, well, I'm gonna put on the mind of Christ. I'm going to put on the mind of Christ. I don't need to repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. When you get in that conflict with your spouse and you just say, okay, think my way. Christ humbled himself. Christ humbled himself. With all humility, he would lay down his life for his spouse, his bride. Do we carry these? Do we, do we show this? And then Peter quotes from Proverbs 34. He quotes about, you know, that, that, that if you were to put on these virtues, that there's a blessing associated with that. And then he quotes from what that, what that blessing would look like in Proverbs 34. He quotes from it. But I want you to notice the blessing. I want you to notice the blessing um, in verse 12. Because it's not so much just the don't repay evil for evil or insult for insult. But no, the actual blessing itself that comes from putting on the mind of Christ and responding and conducting your life in the way that he would, this is, what, this is what Peter writes, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against all those who do evil. You see that? You see what he says? The eyes of the Lord, his ears are attentive to you. I see you, I hear you, I'm, I'm with you. My, my presence is here. 
We're reminded that the, the, the Lord's eyes are always on his, his ears are attentive to prayer. Peter says, this is how dad gets pleased. This is how dad gets pleased. When you respond this way. One of the things I do as a, as a pastor is I attend this um, soul care group once a month um, by Dr. Scott Engelman. And Scott is fabulous. He's fantastic. He's a great guy, lover of Jesus, believes the gospel, and has a heart for pastors. And one of the things that he wants to address with pastors is, is how often there's a front stage and a backstage of life. And that if the backstage is not healthy, the front stage will eventually feel it. And so he, he really cares about caring for the hearts and souls of pastors. And so I, I've, I've attended, and one of the things that Scott has shared with me in my time with him is that we all have shadow motives. We all have shadow motives. Um, and that's not a bad thing, and that's not just exclusive to pastors. Every, all of you, right now, all of you have a shadow motive for how you go about your life. Now, I'm not saying you can't be genuinely nice, I'm not saying you can't be genuinely doing something good for somebody else. But deep within us, we have things that drive us to do those good things. They drive us to, to, to do, the, you know, do the unimaginable. Um, and, and again, that's a way deeper concept that I have time to, to dive into. Uh, but this idea of shadow motive, I think Peter here points to the church and says, this is what your shadow motive ought to be. With everything that you do, how you love your spouse, how you uh, conduct yourself at work, like the reason, the fuel, the thing that ought to move you and drive you to do all of that pleases dad. It pleases dad because a lot of us, and this is another thing Scott had shared, that a lot of people, their shadow motive really ultimately drives itself back to childhood. A, a lot of us have have a thing that drives us and fuels us. Like, I, I, for, for some, it's, hey, I, I want to be more successful than my mom and dad. Right? I want to be in a higher socioeconomic status. I want to live in a nicer part of town. I want to have a bigger house. I wanna, we want to, in some ways, move further than where our parents were. Right? That's for a lot of people. Or, or I, I went, maybe you went into the career that you went into. But, you know, mom and dad never said it would be possible for me to do this. And that's what drives you. There are things from our past that affect the present, right? And so what, what Peter is sharing is the thing that drives you, that fuels you to do all these things, to, to, to live this way, is that it honors the Lord, that it honors God, that he, he sees you and he hears you. But for the, for the wicked, for those that do evil, no business here. Because guess what were to happen if we were truly fueled by this motive. If we, if we really had that fuel that Christ gave us to, to, to love our spouse well, to, to conduct ourselves well at work, what Peter acknowledges in our text is that it would be undeniable. Your hope would be undeniable. It would beg the question, verse 15, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slanders. Slander. Raising, let Christ be all, let him be the motive and the drive behind everything you do. And then notice, 
always be prepared. Your translation may say, always be ready to give an answer about the hope that you have that's in Christ. Now, I love apologetics. Um, Frank Turek, John Lennox, William Lane Craig, those are some of the um, great Elmer Towns, some of the great minds within the Christian worldview that give a great defense for why we believe what we believe. Right, when people bring all these different objections and they say, hey, well, explain the dinosaurs, right? How do you explain that? Or when people bring in all these objections to the Christian faith, these guys, they're ready. They are what we call locked, cocked, and ready to rock. And they're ready for it. Um, Quite frankly, that's not me. I can't answer every single objection that someone might have to the Christian faith with some sort of logically sound reasoning or rationale. I can tell you about the hope that I have in Jesus. And, and so this is where, where apologetics comes into play. When you see 1 Peter 3.15, it says, always be ready to give an answer. That word answer is apologia, is the Greek word. Um, and so that, it's not a response, it's an answer. It's a conclusion. It's a definitive thing. It's not subjective at this point. And, and so... What he's I don't think Peter's telling the entire church, you have to be ready to give an answer for any objection that somebody might have for the Christian faith. I don't see that the, it's the give an answer about the objection that someone has to the Christian faith. I see you're always be ready to give an answer about the hope that you have in Jesus. And so if someone were to come into your life and say, hey, how are you enduring that suffering? How are you working through your marriage in this way? How are you going through work when it's so difficult? How are you, how are you balancing life when everything around you seems to be falling apart? Peter says, be ready to give that answer. I've put on the mind of Christ. He has begged me to live differently. He calls me to a higher standard and a greater life. And so, so within that, right, I'm not, I'm not saying that there's not a place for apologetics. I, I love these critical thinkers of the Christian faith, to be able to defend objections, against objections. But here, that's not what Peter's necessarily specifically concluding. He is concluding that if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, you be ready. If you're really living that out, people will notice. It will be the undeniable thing. Yeah, because I, I, again, I, I love apologetics. One of my favorite passages of scripture is when um, the Apostle Paul debates with the intellects at Mars Hill. When we went through Acts, I preached, preached that message, and I told you that Sunday, I said, I, I'm not, I'm plagiarizing. I'm really just going to tell you what Paul said, because he's so smart, and he's, he's wicked smart, and I, I, can't, I can't keep up with him, right? But I can just reshare what he said. And as he does, um, you know, we look at these brilliant minds. Um, I'd encourage you to have to progress in those ways, though, still. Nonetheless, I don't think that you're, you're being called to go debate uh, Sam Harris, you know, one of the new atheists. Um, but I do think you need to be ready to talk to your neighbor. And your neighbor may have some of those same exact questions. And so say, be willing to say, hey, if I don't know it, I'm willing to go find it with you because I do believe the Bible gives us the answers to life. And so Peter, concluding here, be ready, be ready, be ready, and don't be a jerk about it. Do it with gentleness and respect. And so if people saw this radical life that Jesus calls us to, Peter saying, be ready. Um, 
And I do believe that, again, this is talking to our conduct, because you see that in verse 16. If anyone were to try to maliciously speak against your good behavior in Christ, that they would be ashamed for opening their mouth. Right, I get it. In, in 2022, the way the Christian worldview understands um, marriage, that the husband would love the wife with uh, a sacrificial kind of love and that the woman would live in glad submission to that, that, that sounds beaver cleaver. Right, that's like 1950s outdated. That's bizarre to think that way. But if you really modeled that in your home, really model what that looked like, that people would be ashamed to actually speak out against that because they see how well you guys both love one another, how you serve one another, and that you really live out the design for what God's actually called you to do. How that might be just like a, 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 a mic drop to the world. Yeah, we live Christ's way. We model what Christ said. If you were to say anything, they would feel bad about saying it. They would say, my problem with you is that you love too well. My problem is that you serve too much. We put people to shame with how we live our lives if they were to slander the way and the life that Christ has called us into. Um, and then in verses 18 to 22, Peter points your attention to Jesus. To Jesus. Hey, you, you may be here and you may be saying, hey, Peter, we're listening to you. We're, okay, put on the mind of Christ in the middle of all this because it honors dad. Well, I, I need more than just a, a verbal. I, I need a visual. I need to be able to see what does that look like? How does that look like? Jesus. Jesus did this. Jesus suffered unjustly. Jesus was persecuted. Jesus was ridiculed and yet demonstrated love. I love how the Apostle Paul captures that idea in Romans chapter 5. I'm going to look at verses 6 through 8 real quick. For a while we were still weak. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You need a picture on how to suffer well? Jesus. You need a picture on how to live into submission to, with governing authorities? Jesus. Right then, in the moment in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus says, not what I will, but what you will. He's saying, Father, I'm submitting myself to, what you're, to your will, what you're calling me into. I'm living in glad submission to that. I'm gonna submit in suffering. And I don't know if you realize that, but that is precisely what when the Holy Spirit came in you, it gave you the power to do. In Galatians chapter four, Paul writes the entirety of that letter. We, we walk through that letter, but he writes the entirety of that letter in the Greek. And then one time, just two words, he writes in the Aramaic. He says that, that you would possess the same power, the same spirit that cried out, Abba, Father. Only two Aramaic words in that entirety of that letter. What? Paul was doing that moment. He was pointing back to the one time that Jesus shared the words, Abba, Father. It was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Abba, Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. And so that same spirit that allowed Christ to live in submission to the Father now lives in you. The same spirit that cried out, Abba, Father, lives in you, so you do have the ability, the strength, the power that's been afforded to you by the power of the Spirit 
to live in glad submission to the life that Jesus has called us into. You need a picture on how to live with a difficult spouse? Look to our greater Hosea, Jesus, who would continually chase down his bride and he would lay down his life. Jesus is our picture. And you won't be perfect. I won't be perfect. None of us will be perfect at this. We're not gonna nail it or get an A plus. But in that, I wanna remind you, what I wanna remind you in that moment where you say, okay, I'm not perfect at this. I do fall short because living in submission is really, really hard. Especially when I look at the, the affairs of our government, when I, especially when I look at the affairs of my job, especially when I look at the affairs within my, with my own home. Submission is really, really hard. And I fall short. Friend, again, look to your perfect example, Jesus. Because on that cross, Jesus became your righteousness. Became the propitiation for sin. That he would pay for the penalty of sin and that he would offer you righteousness, not your own, not 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 your own work, not your own merit, but that you could be clothed in his righteousness so that when God sees you, he doesn't see you and your sin, but he sees Jesus, the perfect, unblemished lamb. And so in that moment, you say, hey, I can't do this. I'm, I do fall short. I want to encourage you to, um, to begin to be reminded of the grace of Jesus. Reminded of the grace of Jesus because he, he demonstrated it perfectly. He did it on your behalf. He lived the life you couldn't live and died the death you should have died so that you might have real relationship with him for eternity. And so um, if you're here and you never have done that, I want to invite you into that. I want to invite you into um, a relationship with Jesus. It's confession and repentance is what we're told um, in the New Testament, that if you were to confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you would be saved. And so um, it's that simple. Um, I'm gonna close out in prayer and uh, invite you into that if that's you today. Lord, we're gonna pray.